0: So, join me in (laughs) welcoming Louise. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you, everyone, for coming. I'm really glad to be here. Um, And uh, today I'm going to talk about um, robust realism in in two different domains. I'm going to start by noticing a um, drawing attention to a particular asymmetry that people seem to endorse and um, to say, well, I think that's not right. Um, so so here's, the, here's the apparent asymmetry. So I think that... Is, can everyone see this? Is this? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's not much I can do if it's not. <laughs> <laughs> Good to know. Um, yeah, so uh, there's this apparent asymmetry. The mainstream view is that um, robust moral realism is much more plausible than robust aesthetic realism. I'll define these terms... Um, in a bit more detail in what follows, but um, I'm assuming that people have a sort of working understanding for the next five minutes or so of what these terms mean, and then I'll go on to define them in a bit more detail. Um, So so lots of people are robust realists about morality, but hardly anyone is a robust realist about beauty. Um, And um, not only that, but um, most people, um, even if they're not robust moral realists, treat robust moral realism as at least like a respectable view that they need to engage with, that they need to have something to say against if they reject it, Um, but people don't seem to think that about robust realism, about beauty, people think that's an insane view and they don't need to say anything about why uh, they reject it. Um, Now I think there's two ways that the mainstream view could be true. Uh, So one is what I'm calling obstacle asymmetry, and this is the claim that robust aesthetic realism faces obstacles that robust moral realism doesn't face. So it might be that there are really good objections to robust realism about beauty that just don't have equally good counterparts in the moral case. So maybe that's um, why, uh, you know, if, if mainstream view is right, maybe that's why it's right. Here's another way that it could be right. second way it could be right is if um, robust moral realism is better motivated than robust aesthetic realism. So perhaps what it is is even if there isn't an asymmetry of obstacles, there might be an asymmetry of motivation. It might be, instead of an asymmetry of a bad thing, it could be an asymmetry of a good thing. So, robust moralism might just have some really compelling arguments for it. And those really compelling arguments just don't have equally compelling counterparts in the aesthetic case. Okay. Um, in the, uh, for the first one, the optical asymmetry, I argue against that in a different paper. But what I want to do today is to take on motivation asymmetry and to say why I think that's not right. Um, okay. Um, So to do that, I'm going to consider what I think are the three main arguments for robust moral realism and I'm going to argue that each one has an equally good aesthetic counterpart. So if I'm right and I haven't overlooked any really uh, good argument for robust moral realism, then it would follow that there's no clear asymmetry and motivation between the two. Um, I'm really keen to hear So I'm only going to talk about three arguments, but I'm really keen to hear if you think that there are any arguments that I have left out that I should be discussing that look like they could make um, a sort of plausible case for obstacle asymmetry. So if you think there are really good arguments for moral realism that I don't consider and that might uh, plausibly lack aesthetic counterparts, I'd really like to hear that, so please let me know. Um, Okay, so before I do all of that, um, we just need a little bit more detail on this asymmetry. So in order to do that, I'm just gonna set out a definition of robust realism and I'm gonna sort of diagnose sort of why I think people are really resistant to robust realism in aesthetic case. I'm gonna say it comes down to a resistance to a particular tenet of realism, namely um, the strong form of mind independence that it involves. So here's how I'm defining it. I don't take this definition to be particularly controversial. I'm trying to sort of um, have the, the least controversial definition of realism uh, here. So so this shouldn't be surprising in any way. Um, so, so three tenets, the first of which is what I'm calling cognitivism, which is the claim that moral statements are in the business of stating facts. Um, the second, uh, strong mind independence. So these moral facts are not in any straightforward way constituted by um, either the attitudes of real people or of idealised observers of any kind. Um, and finally, uh, success, which is the thought that Okay, these statements are not all false. They're not, it's not the case that the practice of making moral statements is completely an error or anything like that. That actually, very often, moral statements succeed in saying something true. So that's how I'm defining realism in the moral case. And, uh, you know, unsurprisingly, uh, this is how I'm going to... I'm just defining it in saying my case. Okay, um, so just briefly, um, I'm just going to run through a few ways in which someone could um, be not a realist, right? Different ways that you could be an anti-realist. So one um, famous or one well-known kind of anti-realist position is known as the error theory. So this is the view that there are no, uh, I'm just introducing this in the moral case for now, there are no moral facts. So moral statements are all false. So error theorists will say things like, when we say things like slavery is wrong, we have just, uh, just said something false because just nothing has the property of moral wrongness. That's not realist because it rejects um, the claim that there are moral facts, and it rejects the claim that the facts, equal to your eye, rejects the claim that those facts are mind independent. But it agrees with the realists, at least the statements are trying to state the facts. Um, here's an even more, if you like, anti-realist position. Uh, non cognitivism so this says that there are no moral facts, but moral statements aren't even trying to state moral facts, they're expressing people's attitudes. So when you say slavery is wrong, you're saying something like, oh, slavery, oh. ugh. <laughs> you know, you're not really kind of like putting forward any claim about the world. So if you're that kind of anti realist, you really reject everything a realist says. You think there are no moral facts, you think moral statements aren't even trying to state them, and you obviously a40 or I don't think that moral facts are mind independent, because you just don't think there are any. Okay. Um, but here's another anti realist position that um, is gonna play a role in what I would like to argue. So so this is a view called response dependence and um, according to this view in the moral case what it is for an action to be morally wrong is for it to be such that um, either actual observers or maybe possible or ideal observers would take some kind of attitude to that action um, under certain kinds of condition um, so for example say is wrong you might think you know, one kind of response dependence view it would be the view that what that means is that ordinary um, what it is for Savory to be wrong is for ordinary observers to disapprove of it under certain conditions, say they're well informed um, and they're not distracted, etc. Or another kind of response dependence might appear and say to an ideal observers, M- maybe that such people don't even exist. But the thought is that you could still define, um, you can still understand the wrongness in terms of the responses that people um, might have under certain conditions. Okay, why am I talking about this? Well. Okay, first of all, um, how this differs from realism. So this, this accepts quite a lot of what the realist is saying. It accepts that there are moral facts. It accepts that moral statements purport to state the fact, those facts. But it denies that these moral facts are strongly mind-independent. Now, some kinds of response-dependence theorists are going to say, well, we, we, we're relying that sort of... They've got some kind of degree of mind-independence, because after all, someone could be wrong when they make a moral claim according to response-dependence because perhaps their their responses are not aligned with those of the relevant kinds of observers or maybe they are the relevant kind of observer but they're not judging under the right conditions and so on. Um, But in any case, uh, they're not accepting the strong form of mind independence that I'm taking to be criteria of realism because they're not accepting the claim that moral facts are entirely independent of how um, observers, real or ideal, would respond. There is some kind of observer, whether actual or merely possible, Uh, on whose responses these moral facts depend. So there is a sense in which response dependence is going for a kind of mind dependence, and that um, is where it departs from what I'm calling robust moral realism. Okay, so why am I telling you all of this? Um, I think it it, it becomes relevant because um, this asymmetry, so the the, the thought that... um, robust realism about beauty is deeply implausible, whilst robust realism about morality is at least a contender. Um, It looks like it's gotta come down to resistance towards the mind independence, the strong mind independence clause rather than any other clauses. And that's because in um, the aesthetic domain, lots of people are sympathetic to response dependence. So lots of people think response dependence is a plausible view. Even people who don't think it's a plausible view treat it as a view they need to have something to say to. So they clearly don't think um, that the tenets of realism that response dependence endorses are implausible. Where they part ways with the realist, where they, where they think the realist is, is, is really doing something sort of crazy, is in the um, strong mind independence clause, um, because obviously on board with the other two tenets of realism. So so that means in, in, um, in, in, in what follows, what I'm going to try and do is look at arguments that uh, try to motivate strong-mind independence in the moral case that um, might be claimed to lack equally good counterparts in the aesthetic case. So these arguments are going to be speaking to people who are already on board with uh, the other tenets of realism, people who are already on board with cognitivism and success, so on board with the claim that moral state, aesthetic statements and moral statements report to state facts, and on board with the claim that they're, um, that they're not always in error. Um, and just trying to convince them that they should also get on board with this third claim that um, these uh, relevant claims are strongly mind independent. Okay, so, where have I got to? Yeah, okay, cool. So, um, yes. So these are the three arguments I'm gonna talk about um, and um, yeah, I've just said that. Uh, just really quickly before I get onto them, I just wanna remind you that uh, these arguments, I don't need them to be good. I just need them to be the best arguments my opponent has. Right? It turns out these arguments for robust moral realism are not very good. That kind of makes my task easier because I'm just trying to show that they have an equally compelling aesthetic counterpart. So if you like, you see these arguments, and you're like, yeah, that's not very persuasive. That's kind of good for me. That means my t- this sets the bar lower for success in what I'm trying to do. If you think it's a good argument, then uh, you know, there's, there's a bit more that needs to be done to, to make the case that it's an um, equally good argument in the aesthetic case. Okay. Um, yeah, so first argument, the ex- um, essential advocacy argument, and here is the thought. Um, so here's how it goes. The first premise is any theory that um, doesn't take moral properties to be strongly mind independent is committed to implausible moral claims. Um, premise two if a theory is committed to those, that's a good, or at least a defeasible reason to think that theory is false. And so it would follow that all um, of that's true, that there will be a good, albeit a defeasible, reason to think that theories that resist strong mind independence in the moral case are false. Okay, so why should we accept, um, you can see the argument's are valid, um, but so it's all gonna hinge on why we should accept the premises. So why should we accept the first um, premise? Um, well, here's what um, can be said in support of premise one. Um, so, so premise one is just any theory that doesn't take moral properties for strong mind independence committed to implausible moral claims. And here's the thought, um, people who make this argument will say moral response dependence, for example, or any theory that falls short of strong mind independence makes predictions like the following it predicts that if observers of the relevant kind didn't have the specified attitude to slavery, then slavery would not be wrong. That looks implausible, and so, according to the argument, we should reject um, those theories. And the thought is this, this argument is going to capture any uh, theory that takes um, the moral status of a given thing to depend on um, observed attitudes, whether real or ideal. We, we should be able to generate these kind of bad predictions, these bad sort of counterfactuals, um, and, uh, and, and given that they all look implausible, or to the extent that you agree that they all look implausible, you should then be motivated to reject the relevant theory. Okay, and here's the thought. Robust moral realism avoids these kind of bad counterfactuals it doesn't make moral properties hinge on what anyone thinks. So, you know, this doesn't say that moral realism doesn't face other problems. It doesn't look like it faces this problem. And so it looks like this is a positive case for accepting realism. If you're really worried about those bad counterfactuals and how implausible they are, that's a reason to accept robust moral realism, because it avoids them. Okay. So, it's all, so, so that, that's the moral argument. Now we want to see whether the aesthetic uh, counterpart of this argument is equally compelling. So let's see what that would look like. So this now says, any theory that doesn't take aesthetic properties to be strongly minded independent is committed to implausible aesthetic claims. Um, Parance two, if a matter aesthetic theory is committed to implausible aesthetic claims, that's a good, at least a defeasible reason to think it's false. And so it would follow that we've got a good, albeit defeasible, reason to think that any theory that falls short of strong mind independence for aesthetic properties is going to be uh, false. Okay, so um, why, yeah, how, how are we going to compare these two theories? I think uh, these two arguments, I think it's all going to come down to premise one. So premise two doesn't look like there's going to be any obvious difference in plausibility between the two. It looks like we should treat these, these views on the par. So um, so it looks like if, the, if that's acceptable in the moral case, we should, um, by parity reasoning, take it to be acceptable in the aesthetic case. I think the people who think there's no symmetry are really gonna think premise one differs in its plausibility across the two domains. So they're gonna think it's less plausible to think that any theory that doesn't take aesthetic properties to be strongly mind-independent is committed to implausible aesthetic claims. Okay, so um, I'm gonna give you an argument for, for the, the premise one of the aesthetic argument. Um, and I'm going to try and convince you it's equally, it's as compelling as the slavery argument that we saw for um, premise one of the moral argument. Um, okay, so here's the thing we're trying to justify. Um, oh, oh yeah, so the formula seems to be, right, in the moral case, the formula seems to be, let's take a moral claim that we're really confident is true and let's notice how sort of absurd it would be to, to, for that to depend on people's attitudes. Um, so I'm going to try and do something similar so we need an aesthetic claim that's it's, it's uncontroversial, slavery is wrong. It's got to be something that we're really like, oh that'd be weird, that was false So so here's what I'm coming up with. Um, I'm gonna have Venice is more beautiful than Milton Keynes. Okay, so here's Venice, just in case you're not convinced of it. <clears throat> <laughs> If you don't like the example, then, you know, I'm sure there are other examples that you can um, come up with, and, um, and it might be that, you know, some, something might like rest in the examples, but I'm, I'm kind of trying to pick something. I'm really not going to divide opinion too much. Um, okay, so, so here's the thought. Um, aesthetic response dependence is going to predict that if observers of the relevant kind didn't have certain attitudes to Venice and Milton Keynes, Venice would not be more beautiful than Milton Keynes. Um, and again, right, because you know, response dependence is going to make the relative beauty of the two things hinge on people's attitudes, and um, so you can see how that prediction would arise um, and again, robust aesthetic realism looks like it avoids commitment to these counterfactuals precisely because it doesn't make beauty depend on what anybody thinks Okay, so we've got these two bad counterfactuals and it's all going to come down to how they compare in their implausibility. So the bad aesthetic counterfactual is the if observers didn't, um, of a relevant kind didn't prefer Venice to Milton, um, to Milton Keynes under the relevant kinds of conditions, or whatever the relevant attitude is, prefer, you know, enjoy looking at more, or whatever it is, if they didn't have that attitude, um, then we wouldn't, um, it wouldn't be that Venice was more beautiful. And in the moral case, if observers um, of relevant kind didn't disapprove of slavery under the relevant conditions, slavery would not be wrong. Okay. So I want to... I want to argue that in terms of implausibility, they're on a par. Um, it seems to me at least that it's just as implausible to think that you could change the relative beauty of two objects just by changing people's attitudes, as to think that you could change something's moral status that way. Now that doesn't mean I'm saying that um, you couldn't ever change the relative beauty of two objects. So, um, you, you know, you might be able to make um, Milton Keynes more beautiful than Venice if you demolished all the nice buildings in Venice and replaced them by like, things that were even worse than the ones in Milton Keynes. It doesn't look very plausible to think that you could change their relative beauty just by changing people's attitudes. Now, here's the thing. Um, there is another difference between these two cases that might explain why people tend to think the moral counterfactual is more, the bad moral counterfactual is more outrageous. It matters more to get moral, matters, to not get the moral stuff wrong. Right? So, so you might think that to the extent that we have like, greater outrage at the bad moral counterfactual than we do at the bad aesthetic counterfactual, a good explanation of that is that that outrage might be tracking this, might be tracking the fact that it just matters more to get the moral stuff, um, to, to not get the moral stuff catastrophically wrong, than it matters to not get the aesthetic stuff catastrophically wrong. Um, but in terms of implausibility, it's, I, I think this is a good sort of debunking explanation for like why we might first be more, more kind of like worried about the, the bottom of the tube and the top of the tomb. Um But um, if, uh, if, you, if you disagree, I'm keen to hear more in the Q&A. Um, okay, that's what I'm gonna say on the extensional adequacy argument. Um, I'm gonna move on to um, another argument which I'm calling the moral argument, which in some ways is kind of similar to the extensional adequacy argument. This is an argument made by Matt Kramer and he uh, makes it as an argument for robust moral realism. So he he argues like this, he says, any theory that takes moral properties not to be strongly mind independent is committed to morally bad claims. So it's very similar to the premise one we had in the previous argument, except that the thing we should be worried about now is not the implausibility of the claims it commits to, but rather the moral badness of those claims. And the conclusion is so moral properties must be strongly mind independent. Now, as it stands, this argument isn't valid. Um, oh, hang on. Let me say a bit about why I might have comments before I go on to that. So, um, so, okay. So, so, why why would anyone accept premise one? Well, counterfactuals like the one we saw, like if ordinary observers didn't disapprove of slavery under the relevant conditions, slavery would not be wrong. They're not just implausible. You might think. You might think that they also have another defect. They also look morally bad. Um, and the thought is that if that's right. This might be a route to getting um, motivational asymmetry because it doesn't look like we've got an equally good aesthetic counterpart to this, um, this moral argument. So there might be some um, unclarity about what the aesthetic counterpart of that argument should be. Right. Um, so there are two things that you could take to be a counterpart. You could, you could, uh, you could take the top argument here that um, any theory that takes beauty to be mind-dependent is committed to morally bad claims. And, and then assuming, and then concluding that you can't be mind-dependent. Well, you might think that the relevant defect is not that it's the commitment to aesthetically bad claims that should be doing the work. So there's some kind of like room for manoeuvre about what the counterpart should be. You might think, but either way, it just doesn't look like this. Uh, either of these has as much promise as the moral one, um, and that's because the the relevant premise just looks less plausible in the aesthetic case. It's just not clear that aesthetic response-dependence is committed to morally bad claims and to aesthetically bad claims. So you might think, well, the, the claim that if observers of the relevant kind didn't have the, the relevant responses um, to uh, Milton Keynes in Venice, um, that uh, Milton Keynes, sorry, Venice would, be, would not be as beautiful, would not be more beautiful than Milton Keynes. Um, you might think, well, that maybe you're convinced that it's um, equally implausible as the moral counterpart. But it just doesn't, doesn't look like it's morally bad or aesthetically bad. So you might think there, there's a defect with this kind of claim um, has in the, in the moral case that just doesn't ha- seem to have a counterpart defect in the aesthetic case. So maybe that would be a promising route to um, obstacle asymmetry. Um, I'm going to argue uh, that this uh, line of thought doesn't actually pan out the way it would need to. So, um, I, I just said that. Uh, OK, and, and, and that I think becomes clear when we sort of take a closer look at the moral argument. So the first thing to notice is that the argument isn't, as it stands, valid, there needs to be another premise to get the conclusion to follow. Um, and I think the premise is gonna to need to be something like this. If a master ethical theory is committed to morally bad claims, that's a good reason to think it's false. And then we can adjust the conclusion accordingly and get a valid argument. Okay, um, and I think a lot is gonna hinge then on um, what we can say in support of this hidden premise. Um, Kramer seems to notice that he needs an argument for this. And he says the following, he says, well, um, advocates of Metroethical theories commit themselves to countless moral conclusions, and for that reason, criticism of those theories on moral grounds is appropriate. Um, and but, but I think that leaves a bit unexplained, right? So, so remember, we're trying to argue for this claim that if a meta-ethical theory is committed to morally bad claims, that's a good reason to think it's false. But it's not really clear that there's any explanation of why commitment to these um, morally bad claims bears on the truth or falsity of the theory. Um, But I think there are a number of ways that you might try to argue for that claim. So here's um, the most obvious answer, I I think. I'm calling this the subject matter principle. And this is um, the claim that if theory T is making claims about some subject matter S, then it's a pressing objection to T if T commits you to an implausible picture of S. Now this looks like a really plausible principle. It seems to be a principle at work in many philosophical arguments. So you might think it's a principle that's at work in the classic Gettier cases against um, JTB accounts of knowledge, because it looks like um, the Gettier cases look like they're, they're, they're exposing the fact that the JTB account of knowledge is committed to an implausible picture of knowledge and, um, and, and it's relying on the subject matter principle to go from that to, oh, and therefore they should be rejected. Um, similarly, you might think, you know, some sort of Kripke's examples about um, descriptivism about names. He has all these examples that seem to show that descriptivism about names commits you to an implausible picture of how names function. Um, and again, it looks like there's an implicit reliance on something like the subject matter principle that if a theory really is committed to an implausible picture of its subject matter, that's a reason to reject it. So it looks like we've got independent <coughs> reasons to think that the subject matter principle is true. Um, So uh, that uh, is all well and good. But here's where things get um, not so good. Um, So the problem is that although the principle is plausible, it's just going to turn the moral argument into an extensional adequacy argument. So we've got now the reason for that hidden premise is because a meta-ethical theory being committed to morally bad claims amounts to it being committed to implausible claims about its subject matter. But then we've just got an extensional advocacy argument again. We've just got the argument that the only reason that we're worried about the moral <coughs> badness of these bad counterfactuals is because that moral badness is a kind of implausibility. So it just looks like we've got that same argument. These bad counterfactuals, they're bad because they're implausible. That's a reason to reject the view. We've already seen that the extensional advocacy argument, at least in my arguments against it, worked, um, that we've already seen that that argument has an equally good counterpart in the static case. So if I'm right about that, this moral argument uh, bolstered by, this, um, by the subject matter principle is not going to generate any new route to um, the to optical asymmetry. Okay, so we need to look elsewhere if we want to continue to treat the moral argument as a, a, um, a distinct argument in its own right. So here's a second possible way to try and motivate the hidden parents. This I'm calling the value exemplification principle. So this is the claim that if a theory T is making claims about some evaluative subject matter S um, with a distinctive kind of value, we could call it S-value, then it's a pressing objection to T if T fails to exemplify S-value. Problem is, this just looks implausible, right? So theories of prudential value don't have to be prudentially valuable, theories of economic value don't have to be economically valuable, and theories of aesthetic value don't have to be aesthetically valuable. So it just looks like we've got lots of reason to reject the value exemplification principle. Okay, here's a third way to try and motivate hidden friends. So this I'm calling the amended value exemplification principle. If a theory T is making claims about some of values of subject matter S with a distinctive kind of value, S value, then a pressing objection to T if T exemplifies S disvalue. The problem is, you know, it's just not clear we should think this either. So a theory of aesthetic value might be inelegant, it might be unwieldy and messy, but this just doesn't look like a reason to think it's false either. Um, so uh, we might, uh, if that's right, we should, we should worry about the value exemplification principle. Um, and um, in any case, it's just not clear that that's a real positive reason to accept it, even if it would do the work in getting the argument through um, okay, so I've looked at three ways to argue for the hidden premise in Quine's moral argument, and I've argued that um, the first one is plausible, but it would just turn this argument into an extension advocacy argument, which we've seen um, isn't going to be fun. Right, a route to uh, motivational symmetry, um, and the second two, the two value exemplification principles, just looked implausible. Um, so, um, yeah. Yeah, good. Um, so, unless there's some other way that I've overlooked, it's not really um, looking good for the moral argument. Um, so, now I'm going to move on to a third kind of argument for thinking that moral properties are strongly mind independent, and this I'm calling the argument from categoricality. And here's the thought. So, this argument is made by William Fitzpatrick, um, and, and the idea is this moral facts generate categorical reasons, but they couldn't do that if they weren't strongly mind independent and so moral facts must be strongly and moral Okay, it looks like um, mm-hmm. if um, there's gonna be an asymmetry um, with the aesthetic case, it looks like it's really gonna come down to premise one um, because premise two, again, just looks like it's kind of like where we're setting the bar and it looks like that should be um, treated with parity across the two cases. Um, and I think most people who like or are sympathetic to uh, motivational symmetry are gonna think, um, yeah, it's way less plausible that aesthetic facts generate categorical reasons. Okay, so um, let me say a bit more about what categorical reasons are before I try and argue that the counterpart and the aesthetic cues to actually equally good. So, what's a reason? So a reason, as I'm understanding it and I think quite standardly, is a consideration that counts in favour of doing a particular thing. So there are two kinds of reasons, um, categorical and hypothetical. So a reason is categorical if it applies to agents independently of their desired names, whilst a reason is hypothetical if it applies to agents only in virtue of their having particular desired names. So the classic kinds of example that people give are things like, you know, if you, want to, um, if you want to, if you have a particular objective, like you want to get to Durham for eight o'clock, you need to get the five o'clock train from King's Cross, and you're in London, you need to get the five o'clock train from King's Cross. Um, and that and, and that looks like you know you've got a reason to get that five o'clock train that's contingent on your aim of getting to Durham by eight. It turned out you didn't have the aim after all that reason would disappear. So it looks like um hypothetical reasons that like they kind of are contingent on the aims of, um, of the agent for whom their reasons. Um, so yeah, so here's an example of a hypothetical reason. Uh, sorry, here's an example of a, a moral reason um, which most many people claim is categorical. So, slavery is wrong, generates a reason to not enslave people. Um, and that reason is categorical because it's just not contingent on an agent's desires and aims. It's not like there's some, like in the train case, it's not like there's some aim that you could have, um, some aim that you could turn out to lack that would make it the case that um, you, you no longer have a reason to not enslave people. Um, it it looks like uh, it's gonna be independent of whatever aims the agent has. Okay, so here's um, the argument again, moral facts generate categorical reasons. They couldn't do that if they were not strongly mind independent. Um, Here's the aesthetic counterpart, aesthetic facts generate categorical reasons. They couldn't do that if they weren't strongly mind independent. So aesthetic facts must be strongly mind independent. Um, All right, so as I said before, it's going to hinge on whether premise one is as plausible in the aesthetic case as it is in the moral case. Um, so let's look at um, a way to argue for premise one. I'm going to give you one way, and I'm going to say why well, I think it doesn't work, and then um, give you a better way. How much time do I have? Uh, oh, amazing. Okay, cool. Um, so uh, yeah, so here's, here's like what you might think is a promising, uh, to the extent of sympathetic the project, a promising first attempt. Um, so you might use the same examples before. Venice is more beautiful than Milton Keynes generates a reason to not allow or promote a series of changes to Venice that would result in it looking like Milton Keynes. That kind of seems all right to me. Um, and, and you might think that reason looks categorical because it's not contingent on agents' desires and aims. Um, you might worry that even if that's right you know, I haven't said much in support of the categorical thing yet, but you might think that even if I said something really compelling in support of the categorical thing, you might worry that even if all of that's right, it doesn't establish premise 1 because it could be that there's a moral reason to oppose the changes, and it could be that the categoricality comes from that so what we really want is a cleaner example where it's just not possible for someone to to categorise the categorical reason that's doing work as moral Um, so I'm going to try something else Um, so there is this font called Mrs. Eves. It's kind of nice but a lot of people think that it has this fundamental <laughs> defect which is really, really bad uneven spacing um, and so it looks plausible to say that the Mrs. Eves font would be more beautiful if the spacing were less uneven. And it looks plausible that this generates a reason, reason to change the spacing. I'm going to argue that that reason has just as good a claim to be categorical, i.e. not contingent on people's desires and aims, as moral reasons do. So my argument's going to have three stages. I'm going to start by doing some ground clearing and give more detail on what categoricality is and crucially what it isn't. Um, so the distinction between uh, hypothetical and uh, categorical is traditionally presented as a distinction between different kinds of requirements um, or imperative. So, so a requirement is hypothetical if and only if it applies to agents only in virtue of having certain desires and aims. Um, so you're required to find, and that's because of some desire or aim or aim that you have. And if you didn't have it, that requirement to fire would go away. And a requirement is categorical if it applies to agents if and only if it applies to agents independently of their desires and aims. So you're required to find. and there's no desire or aim that's such that if you lack it, the requirement goes away. Um, but the distinction can also be drawn with reasons, and that's how the distinction is being drawn um, in this argument, how it needs to be drawn in this argument. So, so we're just, it's the same definition, I'm just using reason now. Um, but, uh, but I think that this kind of... Um, the fact that it's usually drawn with requirements can actually create some distractions, um, and I think those distractions could be doing work in, in, in making people... Uh, think that aesthetic um, reasons couldn't possibly be categorical in his way. So so, so here are some things that a reason could be and still be categorical. So a reason can be categorical and it can be merely pro tanto, and where a merely pro tanto reason is a reason that's in principle outweighable by other considerations. So if you remember, a reason is just a consideration in favour of doing something. Right. So. Um, it might be that um, the fact that they'll be dancing at the party is a reason to go to the party. But if it turns out, you know, you've got to give a 9am lecture the next day, and you know that, like, if you go to the party, you just definitely won't get home until really late. You know, maybe overall, on balance, you know, maybe you shouldn't go to the party, right? But that doesn't mean that there wasn't a really pro tanto reason, that in this case got outweighed, right? But a reason for going to the party, even though it ended up getting outweighed by other things. So a reason doesn't have to um, be decisive. A reason to fly does not entail that you should fly, right? Reason to go to the party, e.g. that they'll be dancing, is not gonna entail that you must go to the party. Um, okay, um, why is it that a reason could be categorical in Mini pro tanto? Well, if you recall the definition categorical, it's just that it doesn't hinge on um, your desires names. aims. Now, the dancing party thing kind of looks like there's probably desires names at work there, that looks like it's probably a hypothetical one. But, um, but if a reason is categorical, all well, it means is it doesn't depend on your desires, the, the desires, the desired names, and it looks like you could have a merely pro tanto reason, a reason that counts to some extent in favour of doing something, that doesn't depend on you, your having certain desired names. Um, equally, a reason could be not very weighty and categorical. So it could be that it doesn't take much at all to outweigh that reason. As long as the reason is there in a way that doesn't depend on your desired names, it would still be categorical. And finally, a reason could be relevant only to permissions and not requirements. So, so you might think, um, people often talk in terms of, of, um, of requirements to, to do a particular thing, um, but another sort of like normative category is being permitted to do, a particular. Or deontic categories, being permitted to do a particular thing, it being okay for you to do that thing. And so a reason could um, bear on whether it's permissible for you to do something, uh, rather than on whether you're required to do it, and as long as it isn't hinging on you know, having certain aims and desires, that reason will count as categorical. So these are ways in which reasons could end up, categorical reasons could end up being much flimsier, much less kind of like weighty and serious than we take our paradigm examples of categorical reasons to be. I think people tend to think of categorical reasons as super serious and weighty because the sorts of examples people have given in the moral case to illustrate categorical reasons. Tend to be weighty, serious ones. Maybe, maybe just to really get people's intuitions going, like that would be really weird to think that, that means dependent on the designer. Okay. Um, Alright, so that was the ground clearing bit. Now I'm going to try and make a sort of prima facie case for thinking that um, the aesthetic reasons, the reasons that stem from aesthetic facts, are indeed plausibly categorical. Okay, so once you accept that changing the spacing, back to Mr. Eve's case, changing the spacing of that font would make it more beautiful. Once you accept that, I think it's very natural to say that this is a reason, maybe a pro-tanto one, maybe a weak one, maybe a merely committing one, but a reason nonetheless to change the spacing. That just means it's a consideration that counts in favour of changing the spacing. But make it more beautiful? That seems like a consideration in favour, right? Um, moreover, it looks like it's one that counts in favour of doing that thing, changing the spacing. Whatever the designer's goals and desires are, it doesn't look like you'd have to find out what they wanted in order to um, come to the view that uh, the, the fact that it makes making more beautiful is a reason to make the change. Um, now, that doesn't mean that there's no potential interaction between that reason and the designer's um, goals and desires. Um, no, it could be that um, the designer has particular goals and desires that really are going the other way and end up outweighing the consideration in favour of changing the spacing. Maybe the designer just really doesn't want to spend any more time on that font, they've got other projects, whatever it is, that could outweigh it perhaps, but none of that counts against that reason being categorical, because um, it's uh, yeah, for, for it to be categorical is to say that, it even, for it to sort of not be categorical would be to say that it's even being a consideration in the first place depends on the designer having certain goals and desires. But the outweighing thing is nothing like that. That saying it is a consideration, it is in play. It's just getting outweighed. Okay, so um, suppose. So this is just another way of putting it. I think suppose changing the spacing will make the font more beautiful. Suppose that that fact gives, her, gives the designer, I'm calling her Anna, uh, gives her a reason to change the spacing. We've got two distinct questions. We've got the question, could this reason in principle be outweighed by considerations about Anna's desired names? And even if we say yes to that, it looks like a distinct question, does it even be a reason in the first place, depend on us having certain desires and aims? So that first question concerns pro-tanto status, it doesn't concern categoricality, it concerns whether the reason is a pro-tanto outweighable, in principle, outweighable one, not whether it's a categorical or hypothetical one. It's just the second one that concerns categoricality. And again, um, we, and a further distinction that we should make is okay, can that reason be not only outweighed but very easily outweighed by considerations about Anna's desires and names? And that again looks different from the question of whether it's even being a reason in the first place it depends on Anna's having certain desires and aims. That first one now concerns weightiness, not categoricality. Um, only the second one concerns categoricality. So it looks like there are ways in which Anna's desires and names can make a difference to whether she should change the spacing even if the beauty-based reason to change the spacing is categorical. <laughs> so it looks like many of the things that might make you initially tempted to think these reasons are not categorical have to do with the, um, the way that desires names can count, um, count against and outweigh the relevant reason, um, not ways in which the reason hinges on the um, designers or the agents having like desires and names. Um, okay. So, and finally, um, it's worth noting there are arguments against saying that aesthetic reasons are categorical and that some of those arguments are kind of potentially compelling. So there are arguments from a commitment to internalism about reasons, the thought that reasons, namely considerations that count in favor of doing something, just by, um, almost by definition kind of like, have to be linked at least um, in some way to the agent's particular desires. so that might be one reason to deny that aesthetic reasons are categorical. Um, another reason to, to, that someone might have to deny that aesthetic reasons are categorical is, is it's just general metaphysical worry, that categorical reasons are a very weird kind of thing to postulate. So these might be you know, potentially compelling arguments against saying aesthetic reasons are categorical, but crucially they'd be equally arguments against saying that moral reasons are categorical. So if those were the reasons that you had for thinking that aesthetic reasons aren't categorical, it's not going to get you motivationally asymmetry. Okay, so I think the arguments that are actually in the background when people think that moral facts generate categorical that moral facts generating categorical reasons is more plausible than aesthetic facts generating categorical reasons are the following. So, so, so often I think people are picking up on the fact that, or on it being plausible, that moral reasons are weightier than aesthetic reasons, um, or that moral reasons are more decisive, um, or that moral reasons are typically decisive reasons. Um, such that no considerations could outweigh them. A lot of people think that. A lot of people think that moral reasons are kind of overriding and that there are no other, that there's nothing else that could outweigh them. Um, whilst aesthetic principles are, um, reasons are in principle outweighable. Um, and finally, um, people uh, might be convinced that, that moral reasons and aesthetic reasons kind of have a difference in mode in the sense that moral reasons, at least sometimes are requiring reasons, whereas aesthetic reasons are only ever permitting reasons. But it, even if any of those claims about the contrast between the two is plausible, it's not going to bear on this question of categoricality. Um, okay, um, So to summarize, I have argued against motivational symmetry, which was the claim that moral realism is better motivated than robust uh, robust moralism is better motivated than robust aesthetic realism. and I have done that by identifying what I took to be the three best arguments for robust moral realism central adequacy moral argument and the argument from categoricality and arguing in each case that there's an equally good aesthetic counterpart and that's